This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. And if you do listen on the radio, let us know. Or, better still, tell your friends, because I already know that Times Radio exists. But you can get in touch with me at any point. Email me, matt at times.radio, if you want to have a chat or a moan about the podcast. Lovely. Right, coming up on today's episode, it's been exactly six months since Rishi Sunak said... We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt cut waiting lists and stop the boats. So, how is he getting on? We assemble a crack panel of Times experts to assess his progress against his five pledges. Hmm, it's going really well. I will do that in just a moment. First, though, as always, on a Tuesday, it's time for these two. In a world of politics without the boring bits, get ready for blockbuster debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. Come along with Bernie and Ernie. We're gonna take a little journey. Bert and Ernie's great Oh, I do know who this is. This is Bert and Ernie. You are the Burton Ernie. Is that Sesame why they Street. sing Burton Ernie, Burton Ernie over yeah. again? I thought we might clever. have had the Sesame Street. I thought we might have had the Sesame Street theme. But there we are. You are the Burton Ernie of news analysis. <laughs> Thank you. Which one's the good one to be? I think they're both nice, aren't they? All right, perfect. Well, yeah. they're true to life. Yeah, yeah, both both perfectly pleasant. Good. Nice to see you both. Thank you. I, I, you know that thing where you've read a whole book and you then can't remember any of the content? I now cannot Don't remember. Don't do it. So your book's uh, much better. No, I can remember no, parts of your book. No, no, but I'm just remembering reading Penny Morden's book in the run-up to the leadership election. I read the whole thing and I now cannot remember whether her thesis was that sitcoms influenced the current climate or the opposite of that. Uh, it was certainly a whole lot of stuff about the ain't half hot mum, wasn't there, Henry? Can you, you must have read uh, that as well. I uh, I skimmed through it uh, with um, with uh, increasing rapidity. Um, it's funny that she says it was influenced by sitcoms because, of course, her leadership campaign launch began with this very old sort of Britain, oh, yeah. Britain, Britain, Britain video, which appeared to be uh, taking inspiration from bit. the uh, the opening of the. The only thing Western. I can remember from her book is I think there's a story in it about the. Um, 
digestive impact of eating a large fried breakfast. But it's it's depressing just because it means that I've read the whole thing and I literally can't remember one of those core points and I'll have to go back and read it again the next time she runs. Well, <laughs> I didn't enjoy it. You've got about much. a year, Daddy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, before you get on with it. Uh, right, let's kick off with the new Conservatives. Uh, is it um, <laughs> this, this group of about 25, a couple of dozen uh, Tory MPs, including the Deputy Chairman, uh, launching apparently its own version of what the Conservative Party should be? And the thing that struck me uh, was, I was listening to, I can't remember who it was, it was a minister on, on, the, on the radio yesterday, I think, saying, oh, we're going to get around to doing this. And the instant reaction from interviewers and listeners is always, you've been in government for 13 years, why do you think you're going to suddenly start doing this now? And, it, you know, Theresa May to some extent managed to renew. Boris Johnson definitely did while he was in government. Liz just didn't really have time. Is it just impossible, Danny, at this point, for anybody to take seriously the idea that the Conservative government suddenly got a bright idea? Look, people won't take it seriously. And, and one of the things that happens when you're this far behind in the polls, I remember it from the sort of 95, 96 era, is that everybody begins to think they can develop their own electoral strategy that's going to be very successful rather than in a disciplined way lining up behind the one. So you, even if the electoral strategy that they come up with is sensible, it just means it's completely at variance and everybody's going off in their own direction. I mean, it's highly worrying for the leadership of the party that the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, an eccentric choice anyway, uh, has decided that his role is to develop new strategies, which I wouldn't be think where it wouldn't be where his strengths would lie. You know, whereas clearly the idea behind having him was that he would get in behind the the strategy and and appeal to a certain type of voter with it. Uh, so I, I I don't think you know I don't think you can reinvent using twenty MPs, many of whom won't be there after the next general election, with the sort of leadership they had in it. But it's also very. You know, it's a symbol of where the Conservative Party is, that everybody's trying to develop their own alternative strategy to the one being developed by the Prime Minister because it shows a lack of faith in the chances of that being electorally successful, which, by the way, is probably correct. It probably won't be successful. So I can, you know, but but I certainly don't think this will be a help. I, th I think it may also show or, or be a symptom of a lack of clarity, as Tory MPs would see it, on the part of the Prime Minister about what direction he wants to take the Conservative Party in. Because what's amazing, having reported on this story a bit over the weekend, is that some, not all, but some of the Conservative MPs involved, I think sincerely, didn't believe they were being especially defiant uh, in endorsing this uh, manifesto of sorts. Um, it's a bit more narrow than that. But endorsing this, this, this programme. You know, some of them thought that this was something that actually was a natural extension of the sorts of things Rishi Sunak has said about immigration. Others realised that it wasn't. Um, but perhaps if you were Rishi Sunak, if you were Downing Street, you'd think that in an ideal world, there would be no ability for any Conservative MP in good faith to think anything other than this is what the Prime Minister thinks yeah. about immigration. But how can they not appreciate that part of the strategy is for people like them not to form groups, developing new strategies? Part, the whole strategy is, you know, and by the way, I don't think it would be electorally successful, but it's the very best thing that the party can do, uh, is to try to govern the country in a uh, considered and um, workable way, right? Now, you may question whether they, that's what they're doing, but at least it's... 
it's a comprehensible strategy and it's the only thing they can do. Just to start embarking on whole new areas of where the Conservative Party can extend beyond what the Prime Minister can do in a sort of blue skies thinking. You know, anybody who does that and thinks that it's not defiance of the Prime Minister is quite naive, I think. But, I mean, on the specific of immigration, part of the problem is that there's a, there's, there is a dishonesty at the heart of what the government is doing. On the one hand, you know, you've got cabinet ministers saying, we must bring down the numbers, when that is within the gift of the government, and they're choosing not to do that because of the, the system that they're running. Well, it's not. It's not in the gift of the government. The government is, you know... <clears throat> I mean, I have difficulty with this because I didn't agree with the illegal, illegal migration bill, but... People do want to drive the numbers, which are no, but pretty legal good. migration. I'm talking legal migration. Legal migration is very high. Yeah, um, and um, one of the reasons it's high is due to a couple of areas that people have chosen to do. But it's just it is very difficult even to drive down legal migration. It just is, and the government that is the policy of the government, but it's extremely difficult to achieve. There's another way or another example of where Boris Johnson managed to paper over. Uh, cracks in the Conservative Party's coalition. Uh, but other politicians struggle to, and Rishi Sunak is struggling to. I mean, Boris Johnson, actually, his his revealed preference for post-Brexit Britain involved very high levels of legal migration. Uh, that is the points-based migration system he set up. That is how the Boris Johnson economy, uh, such as it is, uh, was operating and would have continued to operate had he remained Prime Minister. Um, and... Many of the Conservative MPs involved in yesterday's event wanted Boris Johnson to stay in office. And yet they actually, though they wouldn't accept this, disagree with him on, on immigration. But another thing is that although we're presenting this correctly in, in electoral terms as a problem for the Conservative Party, this is actually going to be a problem for the... is a problem, an issue for the country, and it will be a big issue for Labour. They will also face, when they come into office, which I assume that they will do, a, a big clash over... How, what to do about very large immigration numbers, which their voter base and people in the country basically don't want, and which they will unquestionably pledge themselves to try and do something about, while finding it extremely difficult to do anything about it. But, you know, at the, we can only way we can deal with this is at the international level, right? Even then. I think we're all going to live with very high ra rates of migration just because the, of people's ability to travel and uh, being so much greater than it was. And we we are going to have this debate under both government. I mean, you know, look at look at what's happening in France where President Macron um, is, you know, came at this problem from very broadly similar position to the position of uh, Keir Starmer. His political position isn't a million miles from Keir Starmer. And he faces that problem. So although we're, it's being presented as, you know, an argument that's only taking place between Lee Anderson, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, that is not the case and we'll all find that out soon yeah, enough. Yeah. I suppose there's something about Tory MPs and Tory ministers after 13 years in government saying, oh, we've got a bright eye. You know, the, 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 it feels like in the last six months, we're going to talk a bit later on about Rishi Sunak's pledges and how he's doing on those. In the last six months, something has changed in the mindset of participants in politics and those who follow it, that the assumption that the Tories are not going to be in government after the next election, and this sort of, oh, you know, why didn't you come up with this before? You know, it, it is, it, there's, just, there's just something different in the mood. The inevitability of Keir Starmer being Prime Minister seems to be baked into everything there's, there. There's a political scientist called um, Steve Fisher who has something called the pendulum effect, and he basically demonstrates how you lose power every year that you're in office. You lose support every year in office because you're constantly making decisions that are difficult. And essentially what's happened is that this effect has clustered. 
uh, as occasionally happens also in football, results cluster. So the Conservative Party has gone through a long period where it hasn't faced the pendulum effect that you would expect. Its vote's actually gone up uh, in every election. I think this is right since 1997. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and then, and now, and now it's crashing. Uh, and, you know, this discussion, which normally happens and gets slowly, slowly, slowly worse, has just got worse all of a sudden for the Tories. I mean, I think another thought that's not particularly original that I had yesterday is this is a debate that you you can see the Conservative Party having uh, much more full-throatedly in opposition. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, all un- underpinning the new Conservatism, capital N, capital C, uh, doctrine, uh, is an idea that if the Conservatives lose the next election, that is the vision of Conservatism they need to choose in opposition, rather than reverting to Cameronism, for want of a better for want of a better word. And and actually, to some degree, it's an argument that can't really be settled or even begun to be settled until they know what seats they lose. Um, because the pattern of defeat, I think, will do a lot to shape really what post-election yeah. Conservatism looks like. Do they lose a swathe of seats to the Lib Dems uh, in the South? If they do, and their vote in parts of, say, the West Midlands is a bit more robust than they expect, well, then new conservatism might begin to look a bit more like what we saw yesterday. But if if they don't, and if they just sort of lose all the seats they won in the Red Wall in 2017 and 2019, well, then you're probably much, you know, back something much more closer to the sorts of things that we heard from the Conservatives 2005 to 2016. We're, we're also seeing, a f- we're figuring... And that's completely correct, by the way. Um, and we're also, I'm not, I'm not particularly optimistic about the outcome in the short run of that argument. But we're also looking at some of the issues that Labour's going to face and the arguments we're going to have about them. Yeah. So it's worthwhile looking at this. I know we, it's correct, you know, politically that we look through it through the Conservative frame. And it's, you know, I always find it a bit silly when people writing articles sort of suggesting all these. Um, present a problem for Labour because at the moment they've got nothing other than sort of, you know, good prospects electorally. But certainly it's worthwhile thinking forward as a country to the fact mm. that these are also country problems. And as a country, we don't know really what we're going to do about the the migrant issue um, and also about, you know, inflation or any of the issues in Rishi Sunak's uh, pledge list because they are extremely difficult to solve. Right, here's an idea from the former Chancellor, Sajid Javid. He was uh, speaking yesterday. He suggested we should cut the number of MPs in half and then pay those who are left double uh, and we'd end up with a better crop of MPs. Henry. <laughs> Good idea, bad idea. I'm, I'm going to be very boring and say I can I can see both sides I mean the first <laughs> you're not at the BBC yet <laughs> the, the first the first practical obstacle is that um, you definitely should not cut in half the number of MPs unless you're cutting the number of MPs who form part of the government in half otherwise you're just going to end up with a much more pliant parliament which I don't think is a recipe for a better so parliament. fewer because there was, because so many slots are taken up with well if, if you had 325 MPs rather than 650 MPs but you still had 100 of them on the government payroll then that, yeah, yeah. that's going to be the entirety of the governing party pretty much um, and I don't think that's that, that's what Sajid Javid really wants and I'm not sure that Sajid Javid does think that the number of ministers should be halved. I certainly don't think that's consistent with the strain of Conservative thinking, which is that there's not enough political oversight of the civil service rather than too little of it. Um, I mean, in general, my view on paying politicians more has always been that you would end up with the same politicians just paid more. Um, I think the 
perceived problems about quality of politicians or politicians who are in it for the wrong reasons or whatever all start with candidate selection and party dynamics rather than with people deciding not to become an MP because they're earning too much money in the City of London or whatever it may be. Fundamentally, even if you're earning loads of money, you don't get to become an MP unless you go through a particular rigmarole with a political party, which some people can be bothered to do, others can't. Even some of those who might be bothered to do and might make great MPs fail for factional reasons or geographical reasons because they don't happen to live in a seat that's got the right... Um, you know, that's willing to have them at that particular time or whatever. So so basically, I think it's more complicated than that, though ultimately, yes, it may be worth paying MPs more, perhaps. Um, it's interesting, because I think there's a sort of... A lot of this feeds into the sort of the general sense that this sort of... We sort of treat... And I know listeners will be shouting at the radio if I say this. We treat politicians quite badly, not just in terms of, you know, the abuse they get and all of that, but there's the sort of Rishi Sunak using a helicopter... Or, you know, which, which Keir Starmer keeps making jokes about. And when he sat in the chair where you're sitting, and I asked him, will you rule out ever using a helicopter as Prime Minister? He said, no, because of course he won't, because he's going to be running the country. Uh, and all that nonsense that David Cameron did, where you had Vince Cable and Ed Davies sharing a bicycle or something to get to work because it was austerity and ministers had to be seen to be... You know, these people are running the country. Well, yeah, I, I, I basically agree with that. I think... I don't think this proposal will fly. Henry's put his finger really on the main reason. You can't half the number of members of parliament without changing the size of the government. No one's going to do that. No one's also going to double the pay of MPs anyway. It's completely politically unfeasible, even if it was a good idea. And I, I agree, actually, I don't think it would alter the quality. But I do think we do need to reflect on whether we're good employers. We often... We're often you know, we are the sort of employers who complain about the employees all the time. We, you know, we openly call our employees because we, so we, we insist that they're public servants. So I pay your salary. Um, well, if we pay their salaries, then we need to think of ourselves as employers. And then we need to think, are we behaving as we hope employers would behave? Are we respectful, polite? Are we um, thankful, grateful for the work that the people do? Uh, do we um, make uh, generalised comments about all of our employees in a derogatory fashion? Do we expect them uh, to constantly work night times and weekends um, and then complain that they're always on holiday? Um, do, do, we, do we expect them to uh, never go on holiday and the moment they go on holiday complain that they're away? Um, do we... Uh, you know, do, do we behave, in other words, as we would wish to be behaved to ourselves? And I think the answer to that is we, we don't. Um, and so, um, although I don't think Sajid Javid's proposals will fly, um, I, I think, the, the, I certainly think what happened over expenses, um, what a lot of people felt after that was, you know, I've got to get out of this because I, because I feel as though any moment now, I... I'll be attacked. Somebody said to me the other day, you know, I felt I feel as I've gone through my political career, you know, without ending up being lacerated for, you know, having uh, borrowed a teaspoon. And I feel really happy that I've done that. Maybe it's time for me to quit. <laughs> um, you know, and so, you know, actually, I, I listened to that. The worst was, bit of that is the, it, the sort of nice, quiet, actually diligent sort of constituency MPs are the ones who end up leaving. And it's the narcissists who think, oh, water off a duck's back, who end up yeah. staying. And by the way, you know, the, if if Parliament is full of a lot of people who are, you know, it's got some stupid people in it, some arrogant people in it, some un dishonest people in it, um, some overbearing people in it, that's only like everyone's like, uh, you know, that's only a reflection <laughs> of the population. We want politicians to be representative. You're going to get that. Um, you know, but that doesn't mean to say I regard it as tolerable. It's just 
that is the That's nature, you know, but to, to, to characterise the whole, the way that we characterise the whole of politicians, and it does worry me, you know, I, I worry about a decline in the idea of a, of a parliamentary democracy. It's one of the big arguments I've had inside, you know, among Conservatives, where people have talked about Boris Johnson as if he were the president, had his own mandate. Um, and I think these, these are very sort of dangerous way of thinking, but... And I remember having a argument with one person afterwards who, who was going on and on and on to me about how all politicians were crooks. And I, I said, you know, the, you know who I think really are crooks is people who sell textbooks, which is what he did. And, you know, <laughs> and, and he was, like, offended. And I said, well, what you've just said is exactly the same, and he couldn't see it. Um, Henry, in a word, is anything interesting ever happened at the Liaison Committee? Yes. Last year, Boris Johnson's government disintegrated oh, while he true. was being forced to yeah, but that was, feign interest no, something, in... Something interesting happened while the liaison committee was sitting, rather than as a result of the liaison I, I think watching Boris Johnson's face oh, right. as fine, even he digested... Fine, sorry, sorry to fine, dispute you've the premise of the question. Right, you've well, you, you, you took aim at me for... for um, Claiming both sides of an argument earlier, so there you go. Henry Zeffman and Daniel Finkelstein, then, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, how is Rishi Sunat doing on his five big pledges? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now... Uh, it's been exactly six months ago today, 4th of January. Rishi Sunak gave a speech setting out his top pri- priorities as Prime Minister. In it, he included five pledges that he said would build a better future for the country. He also hoped that delivering on those pay- pledges would pave the way for pulling off an unlikely victory at the next election. Well, since then, those pledges have been repeated by ministers and backbenchers in every interview, pasted all over social media, generally shoved down the public's throat to the point where lots of people have actually heard of them. In fact, while we've been on air this morning, I've had another press release from the government. Actually, it's about vaccines in schools, but with the priorities plastered across the top of them. They're everywhere. So let's remind you exactly what he said. So I want to make five promises to you today. Five pledges to deliver peace of mind, five foundations on which to build a better future for our children and grandchildren. First, we will halve inflation this year to ease the cost of living and give people financial security. Second, we will grow the economy, creating better paid jobs and opportunity right across the country. Third, We will make sure our national debt is falling so that we can secure the future of public services. Fourth, NHS waiting lists will fall 
and people will get the care they need more quickly. Fifth, we will pass new laws to stop small boats, making sure that if you come to this country illegally, you are detained and swiftly removed. He went on to say, we will have either achieved them or not. Well, it was a slow burn in terms of the public recognising them. As we know, we do have a monthly focus group here on Times Radio asking ordinary voters to assess the picture uh, of the political landscape. Well, in our most recent focus group, uh, just uh, last week, uh, James Johnson, former number 10 pollster, asked them if they could name any of Rishi Sunak's pledges. Was lower inflation one of them? So it's through the migration and stopping the boats and that. Maybe building more affordable homes. I don't know. Is that one of them? Reduce debt. And waiting times. When? What if it gets to the end of the year and no progress is made on these promises? How would you How would you feel then? Be an uproar, maybe. I'd totally give up if by the end of the year. I definitely wouldn't vote for them again. Not surprised. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Surprised. Yeah. Even though... I'm not surprised that they won't. Nothing will have happened with them. I just can't see how anyone else could do a better job, if that makes sense. Is someone ever going to make a difference? I think I'd have more, you know, my local shopkeeper going for it. I know him, speak to him, probably do more for me than anybody else. So, are we halfway to uproar? Six months in, he's, how is he doing on his five pledges? In this half hour, we're going to work out whether he's on course to achieve them or not. So, let's break down each of the pledges. Pledge one, what did he promise to do? We will halve inflation. Well, halving inflation this year. Andrew Elson's the Times Consumer Affairs correspondent uh, and joins me now. Andrew, in January, uh, nearly every leading forecaster, Bank of England, Office of Budget Responsibility, they all said this was going to be the easy one. This is going to be the most straightforward. Uh, but it's not been the case, is it? Take us through the numbers. Well, um, at the time, it's worth looking at this, the latest uh, published inflation reading, this is when he made this pledge, um, was the November 2022 data, which was at 10.7%. Um, but the number for December was 105 and the number in January was 10.1%. And in, 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 as a true politician, he's yet to make clear which of those numbers um, his pledge refers to. And it may actually make a difference. Um, as you say, at the time, I think that the markets were 95% confident that inflation would be below 5% at the end of the year. But it's proven much, much stickier since, indeed, the most recent figures we have for the year to May were inflation at 8.7%, which didn't fall at all on the on the year to um April. So whether he meets his pledges in the balance, that actually may well come down to which measure he was actually talking about. And we don't we don't actually know. The um, the National Institute for Economic and Social Research predicts inflation will be at 5.4 percent, which is sort of bang in the middle of those three estimates, half half of it by the end of the year, although they may yet revise that up, given given inflation has been stickier. Um, and as you say, it's slightly ironic because at the time it was the uh, predicted to be the easiest uh, of the five pledges to meet. But now it, it could well be um, one of the hardest. I mean, part of the problem is that it's sort of outside of his control because because the Bank of England is independent and the main lever, because the government doesn't want to put up tax, so the main lever for uh, reining in spending is to put up interest rates, then people's mortgages go up and they have less money to spend on the rising price of food or whatever. Um, but having done that, he's just going to sort of sit tight and hope the Bank of England get there without him being able to do anything. Indeed, it was it was a slightly odd 
odd pledge to make given that he's not actually in control. It's the Bank of England that sets interest rates to control inflation. And, and indeed, Mervyn King, a former governor at the Bank of England, has already said that he thinks the promise is unwise. And others have actually criticised Sunak for, for for interfering. Bank of England independence is considered very, very important. Um, economists think it is for inflation expectations. And, and coming onto this patch, as, uh, the bank's patch has been criticised on that side. But also, there's, there's something else um, that I, I'd like to raise is that the pledge itself, I think, confuses a lot of people. I read some polling from Servation last week said the majority of people don't actually understand the pledge. And in fact, a third of people think the pledge means, this is when it's explained to them what the actual pledge was, uh, a third of people think it means goods and services will become cheaper. Um, A further third thinks they'll stay the same, even though, of course, it actually means the prices will continue rising but just not quite as fast. So not in his, not in his control. Most people don't really understand what it means. And that's such a good point, actually, that even if he does meet it, it still means at the end of this year, prices are rising by about 5.5%, which is, uh, you know, if, if pay isn't keeping up with that, then then people are being uh, left worse off. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Andrew, thank you for that. Andrew Elson, a Consumer Affairs correspondent, on the question of whether or not Rishi Sunak's meeting this one. We will halve inflation. <laughs> not yet, he hasn't. Right, let's move on to the second pledge. Grow the economy. David Smith is the economics editor of the Sunday Times. David, is he growing the economy? Uh, Matt, uh, good morning. When this uh, pledge was made, of course, uh, there were a lot of uh, predictions around that the, uh, the the UK economy would be in recession this year, and uh, including from at that time the IMF, which said that we would be the weakest growing of um, of all the twenty top economies in the world. Now that's no longer the case, and we seem to have avoided what is known as technical recession. Technical recession is not a great definition because it means that you just don't shrink for two quarters in a row. And in fact, for the last two quarters, we've grown by just 0.1% in each of those two quarters. So we've just about avoided recession. But over the past year, the economy has grown by 0.2%, which is pretty feeble. On a per capita basis, on a per head basis, it's actually shrunk by uh, 0.3% and didn't grow at all in those latest two quarters. So I think it's a, it's a pretty thin basis to say we're growing the economy. Now, if, if the economy does grow this year, it'll grow by you know, 0.2%, 0.3%, which is neither here nor there. And it may not grow at all in per capita terms. So I think uh, you know, betting the, uh, the ranch on the return of economic growth looks a bit of a thin claim, a bit of a thin pledge. I think they were hoping for something rather stronger than we're getting at the moment. And I think people will look pretty askance at this this boast about about growth when it's still going to be among the weakest in the world and uh, not very noticeable to most people. David, is there anything in your judgment that Rishi Sunak could be doing that would do more to grow the economy by a sort of an amount uh, recognisable without the, uh, the benefit of a magnifying glass, which he isn't doing? Well, I think it's, you know, some of the things that um, you could do, for example, one of the um, one of the weaknesses in the economy at the moment is house building. And one of the reasons why um, house building is so weak, one of them is, of course, that mortgage rates are going up and, um, and, and people have, have lost a certain amount of confidence in the housing market. Another is that the, the builders would say that there is, the planning rules are still too restrictive. And the government, of course, has rode back on liberalising planning. The, the government has abandoned, it seems to me, its target for building 300,000 new homes a year, which is always a bit of a, a tall order. So that is one area where you could do something. 
a lot of businesses would say that, um, you know, as uh, increasing corporation tax very substantially in April from 19 to 25% was not a great way of getting business investment going and getting getting the economy growing. So there are things you can do. And of course, this whole debate that we're seeing about um, about immigration at the moment and the uh, the so-called new conservatives. I mean, one way of, uh, of getting the economy growing more rapidly would be to ease some of those labour shortages, particularly in areas like hospitality, which are holding back certain parts of the economy. So, uh, so those are things you could do, yeah. but those are all politically very difficult <laughs> and uh, politically fraught. You know, so I can hear you. Uh, I can hear you gagging in the background there, Matt, about any of these. Yeah, ideas. it doesn't. It doesn't seem <laughs> that they don't all sound very positive. Which means, on at least on pledge number two, grow the economy. <laughs> Not really so far, David. You're staying with us now because we're going to move on to the third promise. Reduce debt. Is he reducing the debt? Uh, now, th- this is, you know, to, to me, and I think to most economists, this was the oddest of all the uh, pledges. And I'll tell you why that was the oddest of all the pledges. Because the government and its own, uh, its own official forecast of the Office of Budget Responsibility does not expect that to happen for years to come. So what we're talking about here is, can you reduce government debt? as a share of GDP, as a percentage of GDP. And the official forecast is, that, and that is the target that, uh, that Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor has got, but that target does not have to be met for five years. So the official forecast of the OBR said, yes, they might just about do that in 2027, 28. Nobody was expecting it to happen this year. And in fact, since he made the pledge, government debt has gone up from uh, about 99.5% of GDP to just over 100% in the latest figures. So... So this was an odd one. It's gone up by about 90 billion in uh, in cash terms. So definitely not as a this year pledge. You know whether it happens in five years' time is <laughs> is anybody's guess. You know given given the uh, forecasting record on these things, but that is a most definite missed target, a missed pledge. It's 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 not going to happen this year. Whether it happens in five years' time, as I say, we can debate nearer the time but uh, <laughs> but no it was it, it was it was a really strange thing to say i think also it's I just think it's, he, it's yeah, just sorry, such a, I, it's just such a, a such a non-real world uh issue to have picked as well so so this is our verdict on um uh, pledge number three reduce debt <laughs> it's six months since rishi sunak set out his five pl- pledges to the public so today we're taking a look at how he's getting on uh, halfway through the year Right, uh, let's turn our attention now to Rishi Sunak's fourth promise. Cut waiting lists. So, when uh, Rishi Sunak made this promise, there were 7.2 million people in the queue for routine treatment. Times Health Editor Kat Lay is here with me. How's he getting on? Well, there are now 7.4 million people right. on that waiting list. So, uh, on a strictly mathematical basis, he's not cut the waiting lists. That's right. Um, but what he would tell you is that slowly some of the longest waiters are being dealt with so the nhs says it's virtually eliminated two-year waits and it's getting there on people who've been waiting more than a year and a half and then the next deadline will be getting people who've been waiting over a year dealt with so those are those are coming down but they've actually missed one of those interim targets so they were supposed to eliminate 18 month waits by april they didn't manage that so progress is is shaky um, and I think the other question is, is what do people really understand by the waiting list? Because the headline figure 
is waiting for planned hospital care. But there are also waiting lists for mental health treatment, mm. for community care. Some of the cancer targets could be seen as a waiting list. Um, your waiting time in A&E is also you know, well over target. So there's lots of indicators that aren't heading in the right direction. Uh, and what could he do about that? Given that, you're right, by the sounds of it, if they're shaving people off who've been waiting for a long time, but the sheer numbers of people joining uh, the back of the queue, if that, or the, you, yeah, yes, coming through the front door coming to join the, the back door of the queue. Coming through the front door to join the back of the queue. It, the fact that the people right up at the, who've been on in the queue for ages are being now being dealt with doesn't really matter if the overall numbers of people in that queue... Um, I mean, you know, and they're affected. And the problem is, in the world of politics, that every all 7.4 million people tell everyone they know, oh, I've been waiting ages, I'm on the waiting mm -hmm. list, the waiting list are going up. So there's both a psychological thing and a practical thing. What can he do to deal with bringing down the number of people in the queue because of the sheer numbers of people coming through? Well, what NHS leaders say is one of their big problems at the moment is this industrial action. So yeah. the... Action by the nurses, paramedics, that seems to have come to an end, but there's no end in sight for these rolling strikes by doctors. We've got junior doctors walking out for another five days later this month, consultants walking out for the first time for two days, not long after them. And it's those people that are performing the operations and doing the diagnoses that will get the waiting list down. So, yeah, I suppose that's the thing. You, people are going to be joining the queue if they get put in for an operation which is then cancelled. Uh, Kat, thank you for that. Uh, so, on uh, pledge number four... Cut waiting lists. <coughs> I mean, quite clearly not, because it's gone up. Uh, Kat Lay, Times Health Editor. Good to see it. Right, on to Rishi Sunak's fifth and final pledge. And stop the boats. So, uh, at the start of last month, the Prime Minister said his plan to stop the boats was starting to work, with the number of crossings down 23% compared with the same point last year. But four weeks on, and we're now told that there is a new June record for migrant crossings. Matt Dave, The Times' Home Affairs editor, compiles his own spreadsheet, I know, because I've seen it, uh, to keep track of the numbers on this. How many are we talking, Matt? In June, uh, we saw 3,824 migrants cross the channel, and that's uh, about 600 more than last, uh, last year in June, uh, so a new record. Uh, and that came in a month which started, as you said, with uh, Rishi Sunak claiming that his uh, plan to stop the boats was starting to work. Uh, when he made that pledge on June the 4th, uh, I think it was, uh, the number of migrants compared to last year was down about 23%. But um, fast forward uh, a month and the number, of, well, the progress compared to last year is only down by about 10%. So, is there any evidence that his plan is working? Or are there two things happening simultaneously? Uh, the weather, global events affecting the number of people seeking to come to the UK. That's all going on over there. The, the, the criminal gangs trying to bring people to the UK. And over here, Rishi Sinak's making announcements and going to court and keeps, says, keeps talking about Rwanda. Are the two having any impact on each other? Is there any evidence that anything that Rishi Sinak's done in the last six months is affecting the numbers? I've stunned Matt into silence there. If there's one thing that's quite clear, on pledge number five... And stop the boats. Yeah, that's definitely uh, not working so far. So, does all of this matter politically? Times Red Box editor Patrick Maguire is here. Let's start with the negative, Patrick. It's hard to argue that, uh, with the, on the possible exception of growing the economy, because that's up by 0.1%, he's not meeting them so far. Does that matter six months in? Well, yes, because the narrative 
Rishi Sunak and sympathetic commentators and Conservative MPs wanted to weave about this Prime Minister uh, when he arrived in the last quarter of this year and set out his vision for this year in January was that he was uh, capable of fixing the problems that Boris Johnson, through disposition, temperament, and Liz Trust, Liz Trust through her sort of ideological uh, focus and chaotic government, were unable of doing. That was Rishi Sunak's elevator pitch. And given that he's failed in fulfilling those very basic asks, um, it's only going to intensify questions about what George H.W. Bush called the vision thing, right? Which is the big, uh, big issue animating debates within the Conservative Party. What does this party stand for? A load of contradictory things, depending on who you ask. But given that Rishi Sunak hasn't been able to tick the five technocratic boxes he set for himself, seemingly because they were relatively easy tests that would solve themselves, it only makes the politics of the Conservative Party more fraught, and that makes Rishi Sunak's job even harder. Do you get any sense of people you speak to in and around number 10 that they have any regrets about the five pledges? It's a good question. No is the short answer because, you know, if you speak to people uh, in number 10, I think some of them are still convinced that things might turn around. You know, there is... McCorberism rules the day in uh, among Rishi uh in a circle. You know, something will turn up. Uh, I, I certainly don't think as well... And look, as well as, as well as that belief that something may turn up, this might be the moments the polls turn, although I should say... You heard a lot of a um, lot more of that a few months ago. Um, there is definitely a feeling at the top of the Conservative Party that where the sort of seemingly unmissable things have been missed, i.e., the inflation target, it's very easy for people in Number Ten to argue as they do. Well, it's not our fault; it's the bank's fault. It's the Bank of England's fault for not uh, r- raising rates. So you know, even if they accept that the the pledges aren't going to be met, I think there's a lot of blame deflection going on. It's interesting, on our focus group that we did last week, when uh, some of them had actually got cut through, and we did it earlier in the year, there was no cut through at all, but members of the public do know uh, what some of them are. And when James Johnson asked them what will happen if he misses them, there was a mixture of, they'll be up more, which probably overestimates the, the scale of the public reaction to it, but a sort of general sense of losing faith and patience with a party which has been in government for 13 years, setting them... Nobody asked Rishi Sunak to set himself five targets. He set himself five targets. He gets to the end of the year and he hasn't met any of them, which is possible. He just looks like a a sort of wally, doesn't he? Well, yeah, exactly. And especially given Rishi Sunak came into number 10, much more popular than his party, with a lot Mm. of public goodwill and credibility to solve the problems that had eluded him, uh, eluded his predecessors, rather. And that is why, uh, that is ultimately why he became Prime Minister of this country by acclamation of his colleagues. I remember the point you make about, uh, you know, he'll look like a Wally is good, but I remember the editorial the Times ran the morning after his speech and the argument uh, the editorial made, our editorial, our leader column made, was, you know, credit to Rishi Sunak for setting out what he is going to do very clearly and saying to the public, hold me accountable if I don't meet mm. these pledges. Um, and the upshot of that is, you've got to hold him accountable if he doesn't meet the pledges. And it comes back to the old Nick Clegg thing, isn't it? I shouldn't have made a promise that I wasn't absolutely <laughs> sure I, should, I could deliver. Now, that, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. Is, that, that is sort of a slightly separate question to holding Rishi Sunak accountable. Yeah, yeah. It, it raises another question, which is political judgment. Why make five promises you weren't absolutely sure 
you could deliver. And there's also something about the nature of the promises, which we touched a bit on with uh, with some of our colleagues. I mean, particularly re- reducing debt. Nobody knows what that means or understand. They're not very. He's set him. He, he's written himself a shopping list of not particularly retail. I mean, stop the boats clearly has resonance and cutting waiting lists. Halving inflation, reducing the debt and growing the economy doesn't mean anything. Um, so he's only going to be known for not having met them rather than getting any credit for even trying. I was looking back at the 1997 general election, uh, the Labour's pledge mm. card in 97, which was so specific and retail friendly. Cut class sizes to 30 or under for five, six and seven-year-olds. Uh, fast-track punishment for persistent offenders by halving the time from arrest to sentencing. Cut waiting lists by tre- treating an extra 100,000 patients as a first step by releasing £100 million of uh, save from NHS red tape. Get 250,000 under-25s off benefits and into work by using a windfall levy on the privatised utilities. And no rise in income tax rates. Cut VAT on heating to 5%. Inflation in interest rates as low as possible. They are so specific, but they're also things that normal people can understand and yep. feel. Even if Rishi exactly. Sunak did meet these... Most normal people's lives wouldn't feel any a huge well, the, difference. Well, the, the only if he had met them, the only they were sort of a necessary precursor to a negative election campaign in which he would say, "Look at all these economic indicators flashing yeah, yeah. green. Don't let Labour wreck it." You know, he would it's say, a, really the, the, yeah, de- yeah. "The debt thing makes sense in the context of a general election campaign where you say Labour are going to wreck the public finances." But you, you mentioned New Labour's pledge card a couple of months ago. Henry Zethman and I uh, did a story about doubts about Labour's own pledges, sorry, missions, Labour's five missions, which by comparison are so much woollier and imprecise and are couched in sort of highfalutin uh, policy seminar language. And I do wonder, listening to the past half hour of uh, esteemed Times colleagues saying just how roundly Rishi Sunak has failed and seeing Rishi Sunak on course to not meet these five pledges, I do wonder, as much as people at the top of the Labour Party were telling us, look, these pledges, uh, our missions are ridiculous, they're not quantifiable, it's not like the pledge card. Um, but don't say that because uh, you'll get a very angry uh, rebuttal from uh, Labour's comms people, even though it's true. Um, uh, yeah, but, uh, do wonder whether actually Labour will be thanking themselves that they've set themselves woolly missions and yeah, not yeah. pledges that they can uh, they can be uh, held to account on. Patrick, really fascinating that. And it's well, actually it's well worth reading um, uh, Patrick's columns on a Monday in the Times on uh, exactly the thinking inside the Labour Party. And we have talked about uh, Keir Starmer's missions before. There's a new mission. We've got one more mission speech to go, haven't we? Yeah, on breaking down the barriers to opportunity at every stage, and aka wh- education. And when's that coming? Uh, Thursday. This week. Lovely. That's something to look forward to. Put that in your diaries. Clear your, clear your diaries. Uh, Patrick McGuire, Times Red Box editor there. We also heard from Andrew Elson, the Consumer Affairs correspondent, David Smith, the Economics editor of the Sunday Times, Times Health editor Catlay, and Times. Times Home Affairs editor Matt Dathan. Uh, he's still got six months to go. He could turn it round. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Do get in touch at any point. You can email me, Matt, at times.radio. Catch me on the radio weekdays from 10. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, is goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.